important topic. It can be bone chilling when you think about the fact that we could have nuclear suicide in our lifetime. I mean, it's no joke. It was the source of an awful lot of scary movies when I was growing up. You all know about duck and cover. That's what I did as a kid. We had, in Reagan's time in the 80s, the movie The Morning After, which scared the dickens out of a lot of people in what was described as a realistic portrayal of what the world would look like. And I think there was another movie about two months ago, maybe some of you heard about, maybe it's just making the rounds, the same idea, what would it be like after a nuclear ho holocaust. And you know, to be blunt about it, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima killed, according to the textbook, 100,000 just from the bomb. And it said, in another week, another 100,000 died from nuclear fallout. And then another 100,000 died prematurely from cancer, from the radiation exposure. And that was one bomb, one kiloton, 1,000 tons of TNT. Uh, they say now, you know, the, the, they're all megaton bombs, so 1,000 times more powerful than Hiroshima apiece. And we have many more of them. We had as many as 60,000 warheads. Now we're down to 25,000 warheads just between the United States and Russia. And if there's second strike survivability, that is, even though you're supposed to have mutually assured destruction, which means you won't attack in the first place because you know that they'll have a counter strike capability that will be devastating to you if you launch an attack, that could fail for one reason or another. And if that happens, you get so-called nuclear winter. That is, the fallout goes up in the atmosphere. Uh, it basically destroys uh, whatever keeps the sun. It keeps the sun from getting in, and so we all freeze to death. So I don't mean to scare you, and, and I think there are many scarier things, including that video of the 12-year-old that we saw in our second class from our guest speaker um, that are pretty frightening. But this stuff is no joke. And it does raise the question that we considered uh, early on, the 1%. I'll get to you in a second. The 1% solution. I mean, do we follow Vice President Cheney's dictum that if there's a 1% chance of a terrorist attack, we should treat it as if it was 100% likely? Because the consequences of a terrorist attack are so terrible. Or do we say, that's totally ridiculous? Putting all your energy into stopping a very small probability event is not worse than making the wrong interpretation or the wrong policy based on that or any other question, which can lead us to do many more self-defeating actions, like alienating the Muslim world against us, like setting off fears that what we think we're doing defensively, they think we're doing offensively. Yeah. High school. Yeah, and in, in advanced placement, and um, we—it was. I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it was if the um, if the Cold War had happened, you know. I mean, it was a hot water. If it was turned into a hot war. Well, yeah. If if it. Because the whole Cold War happened for sure. I tell you. No. Yeah. I mean, if if that actually sent the missiles, and it was it was crazy to think about. You know, it, it, it literally went from day to day. There was basically n no one left, and you know, and all the government officials had gone down to like a 
state senator, you know, that was ruling the country or, you know, was president or presided over the country because all other, you know, officials had, you know, died in the, um, in the nuclear explosion. So it just, yeah, it was, that was basically what I was going to say. But I mean, no, it was pretty scary to think about how cut off everyone was from, you know, because there, there was no, no, I mean, it took forever for the, for the um, country to even be able to get to a place where they could send any kind of help and aid because it was so scattered, you know, all the people who lived and I mean, that, that's one scenario. There are other scenarios that are even bleaker. There may be some scenarios that are not quite as bad. But the point is that if we ever had nuclear war, it would be so horrific in terms of suffering that the first thing they would have said, the survivors, if there were any, would say is, why didn't you plan, plan for this? Why didn't you think about preventing this scenario? Because it's certainly the most horrific thing imaginable. Is there any truth, or in your opinion, there any truth to, um, I guess because I've seen on TV about some kind of underground bunkers or facilities at the government? And well, Cheney went down into the bunker during right after 9-11, and they put this vice president and president in two different places so that if one got killed, the other would be alive. Uh, there's a, undoubtedly a bunker underneath the White House. There's a situation room, which is probably just in the basement or a few flights down. I, th I wouldn't be very surprised if they didn't have an elevator that goes down a thousand feet or something. You know, there was some talk, and it was mentioned in the chapter, of bunker busting nuclear weapons. It's similar to a so called battlefield nuclear weapons in the sense that they haven't been developed yet. They have specific purposes. The neutron bomb, which was a third one, used to call Olivia Newton John, the singer from Australia, Olivia Neutron Bomb just because she was a bomb, sh anyway. Um, neutron bomb was supposed to be a tactical battlefield weapon that would only kill soldiers. So it would be highly intensive, but in a short radius. So it wouldn't go way up in the high. There wouldn't be a big fallout. It wouldn't kill all the civilian. Bunker busters were developed, particularly for Libya, because they were developing nuclear weapons in a deep shelter. Iran's developing its nuclear bomb in very deep shelters underground. So the point is you need a nuclear weapon in order to blow it up. You need that kind of power. But you want one that would send it down rather than up. Uh, a major theme in this chapter is the question of do we focus our energy towards the long-run Armageddon, doing whatever is necessary to stop nuclear war? Do we focus our attention on short-term crises like whether Iran or other countries should be allowed or can't, what would what we do if they develop nuclear bombs? And another even more operational issue facing us these days is what do we do about our own stockpile? We have 20,000 weapons, but since the test ban treaty, we have not been allowed to test them in air uh, above ground or sea, only below ground. We haven't made a single new nuclear bomb since 1992, against, according to the chapter which mean, you know, the bulk of them were made in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. We've gotten rid of, between the Russia and the Soviet Union, 65,000 down to about 25,000 nuclear weapon warheads between us. But these bombs, these warheads, were only designed to last 20 to 30 years. So a third major theme of the chapter is, should we be really concerned about whether our existing stockpile works? Because we're not testing them very much. 
Um, we, we've took the strategy that we having a nuclear test ban, such as the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, CTBT, uh, is designed to give us an advantage because since we're so far ahead, even though we're not going to go as far ahead as we would if we tested, we're still all we need is to be ahead of them. Power is relative. How many weapons do you need? I mean, we, we got twenty thousand. Do we? What what good is having forty thousand? We can all we all each one of these weapons are one megaton or something something of that nature. Each one of these weapons are a hundred to a thousand as powerful as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they killed fifty to seventy thousand from the blast and and double that from the fallout and double that from the cancer. How many weapons do you need, right? Once you're dead, you're dead. It's like these Hollywood movies, the guy shoots you, you know, and they put in 50 more bullets. The guy's already dead. What's the point? You know, you shoot someone through the skull, if they survive, they probably wish they were dead, maybe. I don't know, I shouldn't say that because our dear congresswoman asked for some toast the other morning, so miracles happen. And, you know, she may end up back in Congress, which would be, she's on the fast track for president if she can actually get her wits wits together. Um, sort of like Reagan, when he took the bullet, he you know, kind of earned the respect of everyone who hated him. Because anybody who can take a bullet and get up, you know, you can't. That's not just Hollywood, that's the real deal. So we have these, you know, three major debates in this chapter. Do we, how do we develop our nuclear arsenal to make sure that things work? Because if you're going to have them, they might as well work. And if the reason we, you, you want to have them is that they seem to deter nuclear attack because of second strike survivability, which translates into mutually assured destruction. Second, again, is do we focus on short-term crisis, and if so, how? I mean, we could just take the view, if Iran's going to get a bomb, there's very little we can do to stop it. We can slow them down, but sooner or later they're going to get it, and then everybody else in the region is going to have to get one, and then it'll deter each other. I mean, after all, India and Pakistan have weapons. They hate each other's guts. They seem not to have gotten very hostile since 1998 when Pakistan first tested its nuclear weapon. Thirteen years later, there hasn't been a war. They had four wars up to 1991 before Pakistan, up to 1998 before Pakistan. The Kargil attack, actually that was 1999. They had one major close call the year after Pakistan developed its weapon in 98, where in Kashmir, where there's been a low-intensity war since 1945, uh, in a province that's mutually claimed by India and Pakistan, and where a lot of Islamist myth, there was fire shooting, and, and Pakistan actually moved into Jammu, which is the Indian-occupied part of Jammu and Kashmir, the territory that, that they fight over all these wars, practically. Uh, but generally, you know, Pakistan and India seem to be deterred by each other. The Soviets and the United States were deterred by each other because of, of MAD, mutually assured destruction. So why not let Iran get the weapon? You can't stop it anyway. And then let the other countries in the region defend themselves. Iran's crazy to use it against Israel. Israel will flatten Tehran tomorrow. And by that same token, once Iran gets it, Israel will be deterred from attacking Iran too for the very same reason. And maybe even we will be deterred from conventional attack, because who knows what, when people will use nuclear weapons. After all, even though we never admitted it, we never committed to no first use during the Cold War. And the implicit signal to the Warsaw Pact of the Soviet Union was, you launch a conventional attack 
on NATO and Western Europe, this is at the height of the Cold War, you could very well get nuclear weapons in response. And James Baker, who was then Secretary of State, I believe, um, when Colin Powell was National Security Advisor to George Herbert Walker Bush during the first Gulf War, James Baker, on behalf of Bush, said to the Vice President of Saddam's Iraq, which was that Christian guy who's scheduled for execution now, I'm trying to think of his name, um, anyway, uh, told him in no uncertain terms, and this, this is pointed out in Bush and Brent Scowcroft's memoirs. The, the father wrote a memoir unlike what the son just published, which was just on foreign policy. And he co-wrote it with his national security advisor. Sorry, Paul was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Scowcroft was national security advisor. Uh, and they said, you know, will it, will it basically, what they said was, if you use chemical or uh, biological weapons, there's no telling how we'll respond to that with the implicit threat of chemical, biological, nuclear weapons by the United States, including a nuclear weapon in response to a chemical weapon. You know, we use chemical weapons all the time. Napalm, tear gas, a tear gas that the, we paid for for Egypt to sh shoot off at those protesters was courtesy of Uncle Sam and your tax dollars was undoubtedly required purchase from US chemical weapons manufacturers. It's on the list of banned weapons by the Chemical Weapons Treaty that we ratified in 1998 that committed the United States to destroy all its chemical weapons within 10 years. Obviously, sorry? Napalm's on that? Absolutely. We used napalm against the Japanese in World War II. More famously, we used it in that famous film of the Vietnamese girl burning, uh, running from the village. You've all seen it, no doubt. If you haven't, you haven't. It's part of your education, unless you don't have the stomach for it. But it's, you know, it's what? It's not a film, it's a news. The photograph is just of her, you know, standing there, but they have a whole video of it. I'm sure you can YouTube it. I could do it now for you if you want. But, um, if you set it up for me. Um, if you just put Vietnam girl napalm. N-A-P-A-L-M. But you know, in World War II, a lot of attention has been placed on the strategic bombing of Europe, which we killed, if you believe some figures, anywhere from 20,000 to 100,000 people in one night. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Ever read it or seen the movie? You should see it or read it. It's, I'm sorry, should have a movie day. With every course. Um, Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, there's a new Kurt Vonnegut museum in Indianapolis, where he's from. Um, and you know, he, he was a famous novelist, a pacifist, who lived through World War II. He was a prisoner of war in Germany during the strategic bombing. And Dresden, which was the city of, about the movie, is about the use of napalm there. But even in Germany, where a lot of civilians died, we were mostly aiming for military targets. In Japan, the houses were all wood, and we used napalm there and just basically burned down all the houses in the country. And that was well before the Fireballs nuclear. Fireballs in Tokyo were napalm? Mm -hmm. I don't know about every last bomb. Well, I understand, but it was used. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not contested by anyone. I mean, th the strategic bombing itself, even if you didn't use napalm, would still be a war crime right. because we ratified the Hague Conventions, which, for, which forbids 
civilian bombardment. It really took actually the Vietnam War in American consciousness, to, which was actually shown because our journalists in those days used to go out and show those. Now we don't have any money for foreign correspondence, so we don't cover what's going on in Iran Iraq. And the firepower is a whole lot more powerful now than even Vietnam, let alone World War II. We dropped more bombs in Cambodia illegally and secretly than we dropped on Vietnam. And we dropped more bombs on Cambodia than we dropped on all of World War II put together. At least that's what's always said. Don't you think that has to do with the nature, nature of technology? Well, our mass media today are they're owned by uh, a smaller number of corporations and does that have anything to do with I think it has just much I think the biggest problem is we we don't read anymore right nobody buys newspapers right and the internet there's a small market but basically people blog on the internet they don't report you know they don't go out to the country interview zillion people make sure they have two sources on every fact they publish and the sources are reliable and the editor has said who are these sources do they have anything to do with each other if they're not independent of each other and they're not reliable, we're not printing it. When you I can print whatever you want on the internet. I was a child in the 70s, and I can remember You're seeing a young kid. footage of the Vietnam War by journalists on the ground. It's a famous shot of the American soldiers against a wall. They've all got their M16s, and they're, I mean, they're actually in combat. And uh, it, it seems as though we never get anything like that in the wars. These, we get some footage of soldiers sort of walking around, but you don't get very much footage or... Well, you know, in fact, I think, you know, all the attention has mostly been on the WikiLeaks diplomatic cables and, to a lesser extent, the, Arch the Afghan and Iraq cables. But actually what drove that sergeant, what's his name? Manning. Manning was the video of the slaughter of the 12 Iraqi civilians. Where the airplane... The helicopter comes in. That's another thing you can put up if you guys haven't seen it. You know, he got a hold of that and said, you know, this is the stuff that they showed in the Vietnam War that turned the American public off it. They said, you know something? It ain't worth it. And I don't want you doing this in my name with my tax dollars. And in any event, wars, the longer they last, the more the public oppose them. Wars are very popular the first week, even the first month. But you take a curve of public opinion over time, public opinion support drops, unless it's a war for national survival. But when you're in other countries for their survival, people, in most cases, don't want that. I think she was next. Well, um, also, I think in, in Vietnam, you know, public opinion went down. Also, support for the soldiers, you know, because of the, the women and children targeted. However, they were, you know, um, they were also. You know, they also had bombs and stuff put on them. They were also part of, you know, the warfare. But I mean, I think that had a lot to do with public opinion, you know, going down for the Vietnam War. Um, well, I think it depends on the, the incident, right? There were some mm -hmm. certainly situations where Viet Cong infiltrated and used women and children as booby traps and and committed treachery. But there were other examples like the My Lai massacre. Where, where everybody was running away and Cali ordered, it was a revenge attack and they went into village because one soldier was killed and they murdered in cold blood all these people uh, and that wasn't the worst one but that's the one that got the most attention. Well, I think maybe that's, that's maybe us not having, you know, maybe not us, us not having access to what exactly is going on over there is one of the reasons maybe we don't disapprove as much as we would, you know? Well, the most important reason is no draft. 
Right. Right. But I mean, I and if you, if everyone in this room, and, and believe me, if they have a draft, women will be eligible this time. Um, you know, you you'd be worrying about this all the time. And if it wasn't you dying, it'd be your friend or your friend's friend. It only takes two degrees of separation. I would imagine for everyone in this room to know somebody who died in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and the reason they had drafts is to use us as cannon fodder. You know, with, with, a, with a professional army like we have now, the premium is on protecting the soldiers and using high-tech weapons and f shooting from 50,000 feet where you're way up high. So what if you're not as accurate? Um, when you have drafts and you have unlimited bodies to absorb the bullets, you fight the war differently. You had a question, somebody? Yeah. When did um, embedded journalism start? Like, that started in 91. You know, in there's a famous photographer, Pyle, during World War II. Ernie Pyle? Yeah. And he died in the line of duty. When I was in Central America in the 80s, teaching in Managua, you know, I hung around with the Foreign Press Corps, mostly because I had the most in common with them. And, and, and actually sold a bunch of stories to newspapers just to make some money. And, you know, the photographers, most of them had a death wish. I mean, you, it was creepy. I sent a few of them, some girlfriends of mine, and they said, you sent this psychopath to visit me? And they said, but he was sexy, but in a very strange way. <laughs> um, you know, because basically, this one guy, his name was, I should, maybe I shouldn't say his name. But, um, anyway, his initials are ML, if you're listening. Um, was bragging about how he took the bullet. He said, but it only went through my thigh. He said, I want to get right up. You know, to be a photographer, you've got to be in a line of fire. Reporters, by comparison, you know, you don't have to risk your life. You just you, you hide behind the building, but you're still risking your life, right? And, and besides, somebody might want to go and shoot you. Uh, then in 91, which was a long buildup, six months, it was called Desert Shield. And George Herbert Walker Bush had this long buildup. Saddam invaded around July of 1990. <coughs> and we started the war at Desert Storm in January, I believe, 1991, or February, I think January. So we had six months of buildup, and we actually made a profit on that war. Saudi Arabia paid us something like $60 million. We fought for about four days, and then they ran. And the military just said, we're not going to protect you if you go out there. And this was a big desert, you know, you know what was going to happen. So most and already the news media was cutting back on foreign bureaus. So you went in with a platoon, and you're effectively censored by what you can see. Now, you see a lot. And you're certainly going to see some stuff that the government probably wouldn't want you. But you know, there's a lot of peer pressure. You know, you get attached to the guys. And you know, you can write a book. They don't care if you write a book, because by the time the book comes out, the world's moved on a year later. But what they don't want you is writing stories. But since nobody reads anymore, they don't care. What they really don't want you to do is be a cameraman and see some bad stuff. And I guess if they say, you know, we're going out in operation, you're not coming with us, you don't go. And of course now, you know, you have a few reporters in Afghanistan and in Iraq, but basically you don't have people willing just to get in the truck, hire their own driver, and go out and risk their life. 
The other thing I should say is it's be the world's become a lot more dangerous. There was, call it chivalry, call it honor, whatever it was, they used to not kill aid workers, <coughs> journalists, preachers, you know, women, children. Now people kill anybody. So you've, the need to feel like you have to be protected by an embed, as an embedded journalist is also greater. And still, you'll always get freelancers. And I would encourage any of you to go cover a war as a freelancer, because you don't have to be a photographer. You don't have to risk your life. It's a fantastic way to have an incredible experience and do something that's one of the most interesting careers in the world. And that's, that's the way to get hired as a journalist. Because generally, graduating with a BA, you've got to have clips. The only way to get clips is a free, freelancer. grandfather, he fought in Vietnam, he was sort of a war hero over there. And Did he get he a purple heart or something? Huh? Did he get a medal? Um, he died when I was one from the cancer from Agent Orange. Ooh. And I don't really know like a lot about him. Um, but well, you should ask your parents. Yeah. And you should yeah. ask his friends who are still alive. I do alive. know a lot about him, but not about his war things or some like... Well, we should go visit his, his compatriots because they have reunions. You should really try to find out who some of his friends were and ask them when they have a reunion and ask, because they always love the children and grandchildren that come to reunions okay. and pass on the stories. Is that part of chemical warfare, the Agent Orange? Yeah, Agent Orange was an illegal chemical like weapon. Yeah, to destroy all the plants so they could find the people who were hiding. And also, I was listening to NPR this morning and um, National Public Radio, and they actually did have a reporter that was in Somalia. Um, apparently, there was some sort of battle going on, and he was talking about how the bullets were just flying over his head and hitting the wall behind him. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, you know, it, you could die crossing the street at Georgia State, too. So, I mean, I mean, it's no joke. Uh, two basketball players died in car accidents in, since I've been here. One right here on Piedmont and, and Decatur Street. Platoon is usually smaller than that. Well, I mean, it was, I guess it was, it, it guess it a was regiment? A, it was a regiment, but it was on a, um, a base of about 200 to 300 soldiers. And there was a smaller regiment sent out, and they, 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 I think they killed like two or three times the number of people that were sent out. And, the, you know, the U.S., um, the president took his story and, you know, blew it out of proportion. And basically, that was one of the reasons that, you know, the U.S. gained so much confidence in. And I'm trying to remember because it was a very vital part. Well, one of the things about the Vietnam War is we won the all the battles, and we lost the war. And the reason these were Pyrrhic victories is that 
there was a ratio about one to 100, the number of deaths we were willing to tolerate and the number of deaths they were willing to tolerate. They lost two million people in the war with us and a, and a previous t with France. Uh, when they defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, they had lost a million Vietnamese. So they were willing to fight to the last Vietnamese for, for Vietnam. And it was primarily not a war for communism, it was an anti-colonial war, first against French colonialism, and then against US imperialism for supporting a regime that we insisted on putting in power instead of allowing the Geneva Conventions Treaty, which had scheduled elections, but we never allowed to take place because the elections would have been won by Ho Chi Minh. So that tells you a little bit about how the US makes separate decisions in each situation, whether to comply with the treaty or not. Um, we won every battle in Vietnam, but they're willing to fight. We didn't defeat them because they were still willing to die and die and die. And we lost 68,000. By the time it got to be about 30,000 in 1969, the American public had turned against the war. Uh, and what really turned the war politically was Nixon's secret bombing of Cambodia in 1970, because then the idea that we were doing this huge war and nobody knew about it, interestingly enough, Senator Kerry was in Cambodia, part of the secret war, as a naval officer, I think on a PT boat, conducting operations uh, across the border. Uh, and you know, the fact that this was done without any authorization, without just the protests went completely wild. And, that was basically when Nixon lost the remnants of his base. Because even his base said, you know, you want us to fight, tell us the mission and we'll consider it. If we give you permission, fine. They had already bombed the Haiphong, uh, sorry, the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail going through Laos and Cambodia. They had, so that, that was basically it. That, plus the simple fact is we weren't winning. We were winning battles, but we were losing the war. Because the more of them they killed, the more they kept coming. And in any war where you're fighting offensively, you should be having more casualties, not less. Because you're taking the battle to them. The way to win a war, actually, is to suffer terrible casualties, to take land away from them. We would take win a battle, but we wouldn't hold the land because we wouldn't put our soldiers there to occupy the land. They go back to the base. That's part of the problem we've had in Iraq until we switched strategies in 2007 with General Petraeus. Prior to 2007, uh, we had huge bases in Iraq. We'd go out and fight the Sunni insurgents who were basically what Rumsfeld called dead-enders from the Ba'ath Party. Um, and then we decided in 2007, now we'll disperse our troops, get them involved in the communities, and instead of banning the Ba'ath Party, we'll arm them. So we armed them, and we called it the Awakening, and they said it was tribal chiefs. But actually, it was the Ba'ath Party leaders that were basically re re resuscitated. And what we did was, instead of having the Shia ethnic group, which controlled the government, destroy the Sunnis, and the Sunnis would retaliate in a civil war, they had a balance of power. So the way that the, we've had peace in Iraq for the last four years, a relative peace, is essentially we gave arms back to the Ba'athist party members of Saddam, who we fought initially to get rid of. In the meantime, uh, we've done Iran an enormous favor because before Iran had to contend with Saddam, and Saddam was a check and balance on, on Iran. Instead, we put a, a Muslim Shia fundamentalist party that wants to create in Iran and Iraq in power, 
because the religious parties have been winning all the elections there. And in, as soon as we pull our troops out, they'll establish an Iranian theological regime. And this country will partition into three parts. The Kurds will be become Kurdistan. The Sunni triangle to the north, Fallujah, and elsewhere will become a separate country. And then Iran's ally will take power. Um, I'm going off, off the subject of nuclear dis But I, I like to respond to questions if you have them. Well, getting back to nuclear, it, it seems to me that um, our attack on Iraq, you think, you think that would promote a desire for a nuclear weapon on the part of Iran or any other country that felt threatened by us? And isn't that part of what's going In other words, if I were an Iranian and I saw my neighbor attacked and conquered by the United States of America. But that was my I, enemy. I would, it used to be my enemy. Right, but even so, I would be desperate to get a bomb so that the United States couldn't do the same to me. At least the bomb would provide a kind of insurance policy against that sort of... Yeah, I'm not sure what the motive of the regime is. Who's read the chapter and can tell me what Stephen Walt's argument is about Iran's bomb? They and want it, a bomb so that they can do what you just said. Is that not what he says? That's not what he says. Anyone read the chapter? Yeah, I read it. What does Stephen Walt say about Iran and the bomb? It's a counterintuitive argument. He's a Harvard professor. If you're reading the chapter carefully, this is a softball question. So basically, you've got to develop your reading skills. Remember the speech I gave at the beginning of the semester. Walt argues that Iran has more power without a nuclear weapon than with one. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I read that. But. And the argument is that now it's the most powerful state in the region. Once it gets a nuclear weapon, everyone else is going to want a nuclear weapon. And once you've got a nuclear weapon, you're, just, you're no more powerful than anyone else that's got a nuclear weapon. Is so actually, a rational policy on Iran's part and our part is for them not to get the bomb, but for us to persuade them not to develop the bomb in their own interest, especially since we got rid of Iraq as their moral enemy, is to be friendly to them, not to be hostile to them. If you say, you're not going to have this, so help me God. It's our policy that you will never get a nuclear weapon. If you were Iran, what would you do? Get a nuclear weapon, right? But if you say, look, you can have your nuclear weapon. We, we know we ultimately can't stop you. But if you get one, then Egypt and Saudi Arabia are going to get one too. And they're bigger enemies than you than we are. And they're neighbors. We're far away. Now. Do you want a, a neighborhood where Saudi Arabia, who hates your guts, has a nuclear weapon? And Egypt? Who knows what's going to happen there? But they're Sunnis. They're not Shia. Uh, you're Shia. You're a theological Shia state run by the clerical hierarchy of Shia Islam. You want these Sunnis who hate your guts to have nuclear weapons? Then just get your own nuclear weapon, and you'll, you'll face the Confucian curse. You know what Confucius said? Beware of your dreams. They might come true. You know, your dream is to have the Islamic bomb. Well, guess what? Pakistan got you, beat you to it. But if you have a nuclear weapon, what good is it going to do you? So we're trying to put Iran in a corner with the idea that if we, this is an irrational, crazy lunatic, Ahmadinejad, controlled by the Revolutionary Guards, who are even more crazy checked by the parliament, which is composed only of Shia clerics, that is priests, um, who are also crazy. And you know, 
the old joke, Dorothy Parker, but you normally say you, it runs the gamut from A to Z, right? Well, this runs the gamut from A to B. You know, they're, not, they're all that far apart on, on every single issue. And it's an Islamic government that's committed to paranoia and Islamic fundamentalism, and they need foreign enemies. So the more they develop the nuclear weapon, the more they'll have a foreign enemy. So therefore, the more they can justify emergency rule and deny democracy, like stealing the elections in June 2009, or yesterday, sharing Facebook notes with the Tunisian and Egyptian kids on how to withstand uh, tear gas by using, what did they say? Um, I don't know, onions and there's some other stuff that allows you to get through the tear gas. All this information was traded on Facebook. Um, and Iran is a middle class society, even more so than e Egypt, and of Egypt and Tunisia can have fairly well-off middle-class kids get on Facebook and learn about this stuff. There's even more of those people in Tehran who are going to throw the regime out of power using um, social networks. It's an incredibly powerful force in world politics now. Why? Because nuclear weapons don't get you that much. We had nuclear weapons. Did we get Saddam to give up power with our nuclear weapons? Didn't do a darn good bit of thing. Uh, we're having trouble with Iran. We got nuclear weapons. Is Iran listening to us? If, we, if nuclear weapons are so wonderful, all we have to say is, stop your program or we drop a bomb on Tehran. Do we have the political will to drop a bomb on Tehran? Should we have the political will to get rid of Tehran? If you're Israel or the United States, the official policy is, you must never have a bomb. Well, why do we say such things? Then that calls into question what realists would say, our credibility. Once we say, you can't have the bomb, if they get the bomb, if we don't do anything about it, that means our word isn't worth anything. That means we don't have much power. Because power is in the eyes of the beholder. It's skill plus will, and if we don't show will, then nobody thinks we're going to have the skill. So we have put ourselves in a position where we almost have to attack Iran to prove that we're powerful which we wouldn't have to do if we never said in the first place that you can't have that toy. Which, in fact, might be in our interest for them to have the toy, because if they get the toy, then everybody else will get the toy, and that will neutralize them. Of course, we may have a nuclear winter, in which case it wouldn't be so cool. But you want to see this napalm? Yes? That looks like it probably is the one. I don't hear any sound. Mm -hmm. On YouTube, got a pause. But Where is that? Turn, the, not turn the volume up on that. The volume's up. I mean, on the screen, the bottom left, left hand side of the screen. That little. Well, you can see what is going on. <coughs> there it is. That's it. That's the famous photo. You see your arms?
U.S. soldiers? I don't know. bad as that was, and I found it hard to watch, you can imagine what a nuclear bomb would do. Maybe a nuclear bomb would be better because we just die instantly. And, but actually, the slow death from cancer wouldn't be pleasant, to say nothing of the fallout. And the burning of bodies would be even worse because it's hotter. So, you know, this is, this is not Hollywood. This is the real deal. And Many people I respect, and you don't have to agree with my opinion, of course, like everything else, but many people I respect think this is the number one issue. And we should stop worrying about whatever political candidate is running for office or what have you, and just do everything we can to abolish nuclear weapons. The other part of me says nobody can safely give up nuclear weapons until everyone else does. You can never be sure everyone else will, so we'll never give them all up. <coughs> but even if we reduce the number of weapons, the destruction would be much less. And the problem is, if you believe in MAD, then you need enough weapons to survive a first strike. Which means, is how many is that? Is it 20? Is it 60? Is it 200? If they have more weapons than we have, then we need more weapons. Now, <coughs> right now, after all the negotiations and several rounds of strategic arms limitation talks, SALT 1, SALT 2, START 1, START 2, uh, these strategic arms have reduced us to 20, 25,000 warheads just between the US and Russia. And something like a few hundred for China, France, United States, Israel, India and Pakistan have dozens. North Korea has a handful. And Iran will have a handful within 10 years, probably. Um, that's less than Kennedy expected. When you look in the chapter, he predicted in the early 60s that he thought dozens of countries would have the nuclear weapon. Now only nine have them, as far as we know, with Iran not far off. The five permanent members of the Security Council, the US and the Soviet Union getting them in the 40s, the Britain in the 50s, France and China in the 60s, uh, India in the 70s, Pakistan in the 90s, North Korea five years ago, Israel I'm not exactly sure when, probably the 70s, maybe sooner. We also have a number of conflicting logics here. First, as part of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which is what? What is it, NPT? in the chapter right away. No, 1968. 1968, what happened? Uh, 189 countries have signed it. Now, it's about 92 then. OK. And, uh, it, uh, ratified it, not just signed makes it. Makes a commitment to reduce nuclear weapons the, among the five that have Five permanent in, re in return for what promise from the, uh, the remaining that they not 183? That they, if they have nuclear power, that they use it only for nuclear energy? You have a right to, to civilian use of nuclear yeah. energy, which most importantly is electricity, but 
right. probably a few other civilian applications. Adams for Peace, sometimes called under Eisenhower's speech. It's basically a regime for providing inspection through an institution called the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. Incidentally, the, one of the civilian opposition leaders in Egypt got the Nobel Peace Prize for having, as part of the IEA, IAEA's monitoring effort, um, presided over this regime, which the Nobel Peace Committee regarded as a great contribution to peace. Incidentally, he was also the person reviled by the Bush administration for pointing out, correctly as it turned out, that Saddam had no nuclear weapons. And another UN agency determined that Iraq's Saddam had no biological chemical weapons. And as I think I've said, the reason that Saddam didn't announce this publicly is he didn't want Iran to know, because if Iran knew, they might have invaded. Iran, Saddam could have done a better job telling us that's yeah. what was really going on, but they probably wouldn't have believed him anyway, or at least that's possible. Uh, the IAEA has done a great job. If you think the reason that Kennedy's prediction did not come true and that we only have nine countries with nuclear weapons in the world out of 193, that's probably a reasonable idea that this international institution, the rules, the expectation, the monitoring, the on-site unannounced visits to anywhere in the country in return for the promise to allow those inspections, number one. Number two, if you choose to do civilian nuclear energy development, you announce it and make those facilities inspectable on a moment's notice, and that you promise never to weaponize uh, enriched uranium, and you promise if you do any enriching of uranium or plutonium that you do with full monitoring by the IAEA, which would determine, for example, if you enriched it more than 20%, you would be obviously developing a nuclear weapon because you only need to enrich to 20% to make electric um, heat enough for an electric power plant because you're only getting heat for 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Whereas a nuclear bomb, which is much more hot and much more explosive, detonated with a much bigger chain reaction, needs uranium enriched to something called 80%, whatever that means. So they would go in there and just see what level are you enriching the uranium. There's no reason to enrich uranium above 20% because you don't need it to boil water, to, to produce steam, to turn the turbines that make electricity with the magnets spinning around. What is it, the electric cords? And it produces electron flow for electricity. I remember my high school physics. Um, so the IAEA is an example of how international organizations succeed. Why did it succeed? It succeeded apparently because it provided a coordination and monitoring mechanism that wouldn't exist in the absence of an international institution. The problem of the uh, collective action challenge is that you can't trust anybody else to keep the rules unless there's a police person enforcing the rules. And there is a division of labor here between the countries that have nuclear weapons and are allowed to keep them and the countries that don't have them and promise never to develop them. So the advantage of an international institution is that it is, on behalf of the international community, there are only five countries in the world that haven't ratified it, and they're usually the ones that have just gotten nuclear weapons, like Israel, Pakistan, and India and North Korea. Iran has ratified the, IA, the, the NPT, and therefore, 
unlike the other countries, is in violation of the treaty. So in that sense, if you wonder why we're picking on Iran and not North Korea, which is, if anything, governed by a more crazy man, and which faces a succession crisis now that Kim Jong-il seems to be approaching the end of his life, having spent most of his life with sunglasses on watching Hollywood movies at four in the morning. What's that? Drinking Hennessy. How do you know that? Yeah, well, the elites always have a way to get around those rules. Those are just for the masses. Right. Now, he doesn't have any hard currency to pay for imports anyway. I mean, the average Korean, North Korean doesn't. Um, I guess when that computer programming, you pick up a lot of interesting data. Well, then I, I was watching that on uh, Netflix, actually. On Netflix? Yeah. They have movies about these things? Yeah, I just got one of those Netflix boxes. You should check it out. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to doing my reading for the class. I do. I do my reading. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask you the next question. Just kidding. Um, so the NPT regime is a big success. Then why don't we all support it? If we really support it, we turn in Israel, right? If we really support it, we turn in our ally India instead of giving them civilian energy against the treaty when they violated the treaty. India has also ratified it. Israel is not a member of the treaty, but you know, if you say to Iran, you can't have a nuclear weapon, and Israel can, the fact that Iran, under the Shah, ratified the treaty and hasn't renounced it and Israel's never ratified it, only makes Israel look worse because they have not only developed a bomb, they're not even committed in theory not, not to develop them, whereas Iran theoretically says they're not developing a nuclear weapon, they're just developing civilian nuclear electricity. Another question is, if the, 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 the trade-off in the treaty is we expect you not to develop nuclear weapons and allow on-site inspections. In return, the five permanent powers promise not to develop more nuclear weapons and do promise to disarm the ones they have. If that's the case, we've got to do some disarmament. And if you look at the chapter, who can tell me what are the four strategies not moving towards complete unilateral disarmament, which no country in the world appears to be willing to do, although there was a big campaign in the 1980s during Reagan's presidency to have unilateral disarmament of the European countries, something that the Americans found extremely strange, but it was a big, big mobilization of protests, almost as big or bigger than the protests against the invasion of Iraq in 2003, also which brought hundreds of thousands of people into European cities. Uh, what were the four things in the chapter? Yes. Like you just said, uh, Russia and the U.S. Um, completing their uh, nuclear... Yeah, great. That's right. That's one of the fourth. That was the fourth one that was listed. That's... Let me, let me just comment on that. Yeah, yeah, we have 25,000 nuclear warheads. How many times do you need to blow up the world? I mean, probably 200 warheads would blow up the world. Because you destroy Russia and the United States, 
And then the nuclear fallout causes a nuclear winter, kills off the rest of humanity. So what do we need tens of thousands for? Okay, keep going. Um, Yeah, right. We, in the Test Ban Treaty of 1963, between Kennedy and Khrushchev, we stopped testing in air, in the sea, and above ground in the atmosphere, or above ground on the ground. We still test underground in Nevada. Any of you live in Nevada ever? Nobody? Well, you've been there? You think you were exposed to all that nuclear radiation? We have done 200 tests in Nevada alone, according to the chapter. You don't see a lot of greenery in Nevada. Well, it's a desert, I guess. I know, but even in the in the city areas, you can see a lot. Yeah, Los Alamos is where they tested the original bomb and developed it and exploded it before it's being dropped in Hiroshima a couple months later in Nagasaki. And we've done 200 tests. We haven't done a single test in almost 19 years. And that raises the question I alluded to before about knowing whether our, our nuclear weapons work when we're supposedly we're not, we're not testing them to know whether they're working. We're trying to replace the parts. So this would complete the testing. The argument would be what? Why would we? Why would someone interested in stopping nuclear weapons be in favor of banning testing? Because you don't know the difference in a strike and a test? Well, you can do quasi-tests on computer simulations. Uh, and that's what they do a lot of these days. But, you know, you're not going to know for sure whether something works until you actually test it. And if you're not sure it works, maybe you won't use it. Or you certainly won't develop new weapons, which would make us more aggressive rather than less aggressive. And we promised, if the MPT is worth anything, in controlling the proliferation of nuclear weapons to new countries, and therefore keeping them also out of the hands of terrorists, then we've got to keep our side of the bargain, which is not to escalate and increase the firepower, the mode of application, and the number of nuclear weapons, but rather disarm. And so the argument about testing is that if we don't test, we won't be at least advancing. And secondly, even though it would keep us from developing advances in nuclear weapons, such as the bunker buster, or the neutron bomb, or the tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, or any of the others that, that people come up with, or even new ways to replace existing weapons just to make sure they work with higher precision, higher reliability, perhaps higher security so that terrorists, they ever got their hands on them, couldn't detonate the nuclear weapon. But what would be the other big advantage to us, even for a realist who basically likes nuclear weapons, for favoring a test ban? Well, we already have our bombs. Right. So those who aren't, if it inhibits others developing bombs, and it leaves us in a position of strength. Right. And in particular, we've done thousands, you know, hundreds if not thousands of tests. China's done 50 tests in their life. So if we ban testing, We've already done the testing. We know how ours work. They don't know how theirs work, or they haven't never tested them at all. So it still gives us the relative advantage, because power is relative. So even a realist would be in favor of a nuclear test ban regime. OK, that's two. We've got two more to go? Yeah, I got one quick question. Sure. Did, did North Korea sign that treaty? No. Okay. 
The other two were uh, ceasing the development of the materials necessary to build the bomb. Yeah, basically committing no more nuclear enrichment to above what's needed for civilian electricity power. And the United States obviously has not agreed to that at all. We're, we're inclined to support testing because in the 90s we put in a test ban treaty and the Senate defeated it. I mean, you need two-thirds of the Senate, 67 votes, but they actually defeated it, I think, 50 to 47. And Obama is now this month trying to get that same type of test ban through the Senate. And it'll be very interesting. I, I don't think it's come up for a vote yet, has it? But it, it, it could come up for a vote soon, and obviously there's plenty of votes against it, but is there more than 34 votes against it? And a number of people like Senator McCain, who voted against the test ban in the 90s, has said he's open to supporting it this time. And what was the last one? That's right, you're four for four. Give that guy a cigar. You did. <laughs> See how easy it is when you do the reading? But well, you read it closely. Um, what's that? We have the book open to the page. <laughs> okay, what that is is to give out nuclear fuel to any country that wants a nuclear power plant. And you put the, plant, the fuel into a nuclear fuel plant, and then you inspect the fuel plant to make sure it hasn't been diverted. And, you know, assuming the nuclear power plant is running like an electric power plant, you don't have to start in learning how to enrich uranium, which you could also learn how to enrich it thicker, richer, more dense, more dense until it's weapons grade uh, and potentially weaponizable. Yeah. I think what um, studies have they done in terms of Nevada with uh, the long-term effects of the air quality there? I know the air quality was pretty bad when I was there. I don't know the answer. Time, there was a time when you could go there for cleaning, and you know, of course, they do do a lot of testing. Well, we have the worst air in the country here, so. Now we it wasn't like that. All the time. Well, when I moved here in '98, the Wall Street Journal had a front-page article saying Atlanta overtakes Los Angeles, the worst smog yeah. in the country. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's yeah. awful here. We have twice the commute, average commute, of any city mm -hmm. in America. And that's why they have the day. LA, everyone, you know, they, they're, they're, their traffic is worse, but they only live three to five miles from work. The average Atlantan commutes 68 miles a day. Know anything about Houston? It's bad. They traffic bad. Houston's got better public transportation, or they're working on getting better public transportation. Mm -hmm. that was, that was, I think that was a huge thing they did. Um, I think yeah, we're limited by the people here who don't I don't think Georgia's bad air outside the metro area. Right. No. I was going to say, is it just concentrated mainly in Atlanta? Or? Metro Atlanta. Yeah. You know, when you see the days, they say orange, orange, you know, beware when you're outside. Don't even go outside. Yeah, that's yeah. what they're talking about. I mean, the problem is that we have high <laughs> air temperatures. <laughs> Don't go jogging in the park. Oh, yeah, See, the problem is we have high air temperature most of the years. So in the winter, you can have bad smog, but you don't get yeah. the chemical reaction without the heat. Water vapor, yeah. right. Um, 
But if people, you know, everyone in Atlanta wants to have their own little acre or so, so people drive really long distances to work, and they drive, they live in south, you know, 50 miles south of Atlanta and work in the perimeter or even yeah. further north. And the term exurbs was invented here. Before it was just suburbs, but now you're, if you're outside the suburbs, you're in the exurbs. Wow. I, I read a book uh, called The 50-Year Wound about the Cold War, and one of the things he mentions in that book is that in the 1950s, um, Kodak, the company Kodak, notified the government that film was being affected by ambient radiation out west, that people were bringing in their film, and apparently it was being ruined or affected by, by the nuclear testing that was going on at the time. And the government didn't even realize until the Kodak came to them and told them what was going on. So. And they just closed the last Kodak processing yeah. film lab. <laughs> so sad. I had my Instamatic as a kid. Um, you know, you, you really you only, you only had a couple of pictures to take. It was too expensive. You know, you had, it had to be just right. You really now you snap sixty photos of, and who knows where they end up on the World Wide Web, right? Do you remember those cube flashes that would turn? Oh yeah. Well, I remember when they had powder. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they just had really bright light bulbs. They just keep the light bulb on. It'd be blind because the thing's always on. Especially with the school photographs. That's why you want to rush in and out and everybody looks pale. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then the question is, all right, what strategy should we do? Okay, one question is, what should we do about Iran, right? That's the one. Or what should we do about Indian Pakistan? Or what should we do about North Korea? Or what should we do about Israel? Starting with Iraq, Iran, excuse me, the strategy has been to impose sanctions that are approved by the UN Security Council as the implementing agency, the IAEA, which is a UN agency created by a UN treaty, the NPT. Yeah. I, I think North Korea is going to be a What's the problem with North Korea? I would say totalitarian. A totalitarian regime that just treats his people, own people terribly, could care less what anybody <coughs> else thinks, and feels like nobody's going to do anything about it. And totally closed off with the world, so unconcerned about nobody, world public opinion. Exactly, so you don't even know what's going on. And what's the, what's the big enchilada? You're leaving one thing out. Kim Jong about to die. And his son. I already mentioned that. But who knows what what's the big enchilada about? Pumunyang. Where is Pumunyang? A few miles. Just a stone's throw from Beijing, Tokyo, and Seoul. Three of the most important cities of the world. Northeast Asia is a perennial zone of conflict in world history. Next to Europe, it's the second most crisis-filled area in terms of destructive power in past wars. Obviously, there are wars everywhere, but... Didn't he, like, send a missile off on the 4th of July or something like that? He did, uh, something, he, he did something like that, and more importantly, the CBT, the, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty monitoring facilities caught his tests. You know, they before he had nuclear weapons, he was doing these tests, and now he's got missiles, so he already has a missile and a nuclear bomb that could wipe out the capitals of Japan, China, and South Korea. 
Are the United States and China of one mind with regard to North Korea? As to ends, but not as to means. Um, we have generally favored a multi-party right. negotiating track, and China has preferred to go one-on-one. -on -one. It's kind of saying, they're not going to listen to you. The less you behave, get involved, the better. You already had a deal with them. Right, right. We get under Carter's mediation in the 90s, we traded in their heavy water breeder reactors for light water breeder right. reactors. Heavy water is easier to convert into heavily enriched uranium for a bomb, but it's still possible to convert the light water. So we gave them free, two free nuclear power plants to replace two previous ones, which they were using to develop nuclear grade enrichment. And they just proceeded to make nuclear fuel out of the light breeder reactor. Or they had a secret heavy breeder reactor that we didn't know about somewhere else. Not exactly sure. We don't get told the whole truth about what is probably a big intelligence failure by the United States. In any event, we were caught by surprise until the test. Yeah. So it didn't mention in here anything about like trying to find out ways to prevent someone from attacking us. Um, as like in the, the chapter is about disarmament, so not not so much about. Yeah. Is that but is that going on where they where they're like watching the skies and if one comes like turning it around. Well, you can be sure that Washington, D.C., and New York City have more protection than we have here. But they're also much more likely to be targeted. So Washington, D.C. has an anti-ballistic missile system. I don't know where it's located, but theoretically, I think the reason the White House has never been attacked by a cruise missile, or maybe it has been attacked, is the White House is ground zero for the ABM system. And the Capitol is number two. Even if that plane had gotten close to the Capitol, probably the ABM system would shoot it down. Um, well, it got close to the Pentagon. Well, it did, it did hit the Pentagon, actually. <laughs> that's what yeah, I'm saying, very, very close. I guess that's really for, you know, way up high in the atmosphere, and these planes right. were flying low. Right. So I take, back, I take that back completely. Right. No, I mean, I guess you have to be up in the atmosphere, and if, if that's what missiles do, they go up high. Hmm. So why hasn't there been an exocet missile shot against the White House? <laughs> Would be easy to do when you think about it. Uh, so to answer your question, you know, of course that's what intelligence agencies are for, and we've got 25-odd intelligence agencies. Now they're supposedly coordinated by the Director of National Intelligence, who puts all the intelligence to together. Uh, under the Bush administration, we had this bizarre situation where the president was being briefed, as well as the vice president and the secretary of defense, on all the raw intelligence they had gathered in the previous 24 hours, without any real assessment as to reliability. But they were so scared of a second strike coming, particularly after 9-11, that they were listening to every time, you know, you Googled a friend on Facebook, Googled or, you know, wrote a friend on Facebook, let's attack the Pentagon, you know, immediately that goes into the raw intelligence, and, and then your Facebook is being monitored the next 10 weeks. So you have an FBI file if you, if you ever wrote that. You didn't, though. I have If you ever go like, I met this guy and I went nuclear over him, you better yeah. watch it. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, I think that you know, the, the problem with Iraq is that we, Iran is that we put them in a corner and now it's a question of honor. And as a matter of honor, and their honor and ours, nobody wants to back down. So in order to 
we have to think about a way for them to save face. But the more we demonize them, the more it becomes unlikely that they'll ever want to save face, or even could save face if they wanted to, if we were allowing them to. The one way that could happen is if they have a democratic regime change, and then the new people want a different policy, which is presumably why Mousavi was not allowed to take power after he won the election in 2009, is because he would have ended the nuclear weapons program, which is what the Revolutionary Guards wanted, and they control the nuclear weapons program and the security apparatus of the Iranian regime. Um, second issue is what can we do to advance in these four areas that have been identified, especially the two where we've had progress. We've got the Senate Treaty on testing, banning testing, and we've got the negotiations for reduction of weapons between the Russians and the United States. The Senate is faced with the choice of whether to accept or reject both of these proposals. Um, having a nuclear enrichment uh, repository um, saving it for a rainy day is, is a pretty good idea, but so far that's just been done bilaterally. Russia had offered Iran uh, nuclear fuel enriched for electric power plant in return for they handing over the uranium that they had already enriched above a nuclear power plant. Uh, Ahmadinejad said yes, and then he was overruled by the Revolutionary Guards. Mm. Now he may have just said yes for the sake of sounding like Mr. Good Guy, or it may have been good cop, bad cop, or it may have been he got overruled. It's hard to know inside the Iranian regime with that black box what's really going on inside the shut doors. As far as you know, much more comprehensive test banning, um, uh, I don't know if it will get the rest of the world to go along or not. You know, there is a, this comprehensive test ban treaty, but so far, you know, you got 60 or 80 countries. You don't have 193 the way you have 188 with NPT. And these things don't really work if, you know, the five countries in the world that you're worried about are the ones that haven't ratified. Everybody else ratifies it, but the ones who are most likely to want these weapons go on and test the treaties and develop them, and it's not going to do as much good. Then there's the question of sincerity. Um, do we come across as sincere about disarmament when we allow Israel to have a nuclear weapon or we don't at least come publicly complain about it? Officially, Israel doesn't announce whether it has a bomb. And we don't say to the world, Israel has a bomb. And Israel doesn't say we have a bomb. Why? Because they're actually better off. The less you know and less is known, the better in terms of their deterrent. But it does make us look like we're hypocrites or we support our ally on not disarming when we expect everyone else to disarm. And considering Israel's human rights violations in the West Bank, it looks like we're supporting a tyrannical regime vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, at least from those people in the world who represent a very large fraction, if not a majority, of world public opinion that Israel is the oppressor in the West Bank, even if it's also subjected to oppression by the suicidal bombings by terrorists. And the commitment of certain oppositional states to wipe off Israel from the map, including Iran with its nuclear weapon. Aside from sincerity, we also have the question of why are we always proposing new weapon systems? the bunker busters, the replacement systems. If we were really interested in disarmament, then we wouldn't always be concerned about having more than they have. Now realists say, just forget about the NPT, forget about all these treaties. We're most secure when we, when we have more than anybody else. And since we're powerful, and since we're the world's leaders, and since we're a good country, why shouldn't we just have more than everyone else? 
and that's a realist point of view. The problem, of course, is that may not be in our enlightened self-interest. Why? An arms race is really expensive. It's just wasted money. After all, how many weapons do you need? Second of all, for, for security, which is our goal, I mean, we're, not, we're not seeking to conquer other countries. The days of colonialism are over. We don't need to attack other countries, so we don't need offensive capabilities. We just need defensive capabilities. In other words, we just need to have enough to keep us safe. And we just want to make sure that those work safely so there's no misunderstanding in a crisis so that what we think is defensive, they think is offensive, and then they start attacking us, and then we've got to attack as they think we're going to attack, and they think they've got to attack first because we think we're going to attack first to stop them from attacking first, et cetera, et cetera. It gets kind of crazy. But that's how these things can go in a nuclear crisis when you're mind, reading their mind and you're reading their mind and so forth. Finally, uh, I guess we're almost out of time. We are out of time. But finally, the, the other point that should be emphasized is that um, the military-industrial complex with General Eisenhower, which is how he liked to be referred after he retired as president, said that you know interests particularly military interests, continue to pressure for continuation of the status quo. Because you have so many companies making money off of this, they're going to continue to lobby for more contracts, whether you need the stuff or not. So in terms of our own policies, you need a high degree of independence to figure out what we really need to be safe, and then make decisions accordingly, not on the basis of what lobbyist group has paid campaign contributions for our elections, which are the best that money can buy. Okay, see you on Thursday.